New Ghost Stories Volume 3 is out now. In these eight new cases, we meet ordinary people facing extraordinary nightmares. From burnt-out parents stalked by shadows to social media stars discovering what else watches them. These are stories where the sins of the past never stay hidden. They always return to haunt the present. Each story is transcribed from real witness accounts. These people truly believe they've seen ghosts and their lives were never the same again. Will you give them the benefit of the doubt? Could you ever believe them? New Ghost Stories Volume 3 is available from Amazon and other online book retailers now. To find out more, visit at New Ghost Stories on Twitter and Instagram and visit my substack at davidpaulnixon.substack.com The story you're about to hear was told to me in the strictest of confidence. Certain names, dates and locations may have been changed to protect that confidence. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognise any of the people, places or events that feature in this story, I ask you not to reveal any information publicly out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. My name is David Paul Nixon, and this is the New Ghost Stories podcast, where we delve into the New Ghost Stories archive to hear witness accounts of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies, or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. I think for most of us it's been quite a long time since we were living our lives in a state that we would consider to be normal. The world as we know it came to a rather sudden halt in the spring of 2020, when we were driven indoors and forced to stay there. Some of us are still there. I am fortunate enough to be living somewhere where restrictions have been lifted. I can go out, I can see my friends, travel nationally even internationally within certain parameters. Yet, I don't find myself feeling any less anxious. Life seems so fragile now. We might soon be forced indoors again. And if our freedoms remain, what kind of normality would our lives return to? We should not imagine that our lives pre-pandemic were without their troubles. The stories that I've been working on over the past few years, the stories that make up New Ghost Stories Volume 3, are almost all contemporary. Reading them now, they almost seem to offer a state-of-the-nation glimpse of a country heading towards disaster. They show a world already in the grip of multiple crises, from housing and inequality to harassment on social media and environmental disasters. Our world was already fracturing. If anything, the pandemic has worsened most of these issues. The last 18 months may have seen us faced with a unique crisis, but the worst may yet still be to come. I wonder whether it's better to not seek a return to normal, but to ask ourselves, what would we like normal to be? Times of crisis inevitably lead to more ghost stories. It will be interesting to see what ghost stories the pandemic brings us. But our story today is about burnout. It's about people stretched to the limit just trying to provide for their family 
and keep a roof over their heads. One of the stories in the book I suspect people will relate to the most. There are no haunted castles or grey ladies or ancient secrets, just people trying to get by, hoping that if they can stick it out, that their problems will just go away, and that they won't reach a tipping point, a point of crisis from which there will be no return. Who knows what the world will hold for us in the near future? I fear, alas, that it will all be very familiar indeed. On a more positive note, as mentioned at the top of the episode, New Ghost Stories Volume 3 is available now. Four years of work is complete. It was never meant to take so long, but hopefully the work is worth the effort. The book is available on ebook from a variety of online retailers and in paperback from Amazon. Just search New Ghost Stories Volume 3. Free copies of the book are also available to patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider making a per-episode donation and head over to patreon.com slash newghoststories. We will now begin today's story. It's case number 314. It's called, How Long Will This Go On? And you can hear it in full, uninterrupted, after these messages. The New Ghost Stories podcast is supported by Horrified the website that celebrates and champions British horror, covering films, television, books, fiction and more. You can visit Horrified at horrifiedmagazine.co.uk and find them on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at horrifiedmag. The first time I saw the old man was on the northern line. I'd take the train from Elephant and Castle all the way up to King's Cross. Elephant and Castle is an early stop so I'd normally get a seat. Lots of people piled on before it started moving. I spotted his blank grey face amongst them. I didn't quite get what was so weird about him at first. His stare was creepy, he looked pretty intense, but he wasn't really looking at anything in particular. He was just some strange-looking guy. If we'd been passing through Camden, I wouldn't have batted an eyelid. I mustn't have thought too much about him because I drifted off to sleep somewhere between Borough and London Bridge. It was another long day. A third that week, I'd message Millie to say I'd be late. Normally I'd get a text back at least saying OK or no worries. I got nothing before I'd taken the elevator down to the platform. That meant I was probably going to be in trouble when I got home although she didn't really get angry with me any more. Maybe I'd be lucky. In a text earlier, she said that Cleo had been quieter than normal. She might have been busy or asleep when I texted her. She might just have expected me to be late. It was getting to be a habit, and it wasn't going to be ending any time soon. I hadn't planned to keep my job. I'd started to look for something else. But then content migration kicked off and they hired a lot more staff to do it. They needed people with experience to supervise. I got promoted because I'd been there a few years and knew the systems. We decided it was best for me to take it for the sake of the money. The project, which I already knew was going to be big, was going to take us to August for the launch of the autumn ranges. That was only two weeks before Cleo was due. I was sure the project would overrun, because they always do. 
but I was taking time off at the birth no matter what. If it overran, it was someone else's problem. But the new content system did what it was supposed to do. It made sales go up. When that happened, leadership started asking, why aren't we doing this faster? With the economy being so bad and the high street struggling, why were we taking our time when we could be making more money ahead of Christmas? So the projects I started on became phase one. We ended up having a phase two and three and four. We needed to hire new staff. I got promoted to line manager even though I didn't get paid like one and never got any training. But there was some overtime pay, so me and Millie thought we'd at least get some extra cash. We know we're going to need it. Then phase two hit loads of problems. The people building the content management system discover what they've built to show off women's wear doesn't work so well on tableware or toys or furniture. We could have told them that, but no one asked. You have a system that sizes your images in a way that looks good when it's a size zero model, but when it's showing a kettle or a toaster, it either looks too far away or way too close. You have people in my team sizing images on Photoshop who've never even used Photoshop before, just to meet our deadlines. And the systems keep failing when you need them. It's always the same. No one wants to spend money making the tech work because no one making the decisions knows anything about tech. They never have to use it. And if you somehow get it live and it looks okay, then there's no rush to sort out the problem. Once it's done, no one cares how much of a ball ache it all was. I wake up when the train's leaving Angel. I'm thinking about work even when I'm asleep. I'm just glad to get some sleep. The train has started to empty now. I look down the carriage and see the old man is still there. I can see him better now. He's dressed like he just got out of bed. He's wearing sandals and what looks like pyjamas. He's thrown an overcoat over the top to keep him warm. It's filthy dirty. He hasn't shaved for days. His white hair is sticking out on all sides, but he's bald on top. He looks like a total nutter. I get off at King's Cross. I look at him as I get up, and he's just staring into space. Doesn't clock me at all. But there was still something else about him that was really weird, but I couldn't put my finger on it. It wasn't until I was on the escalator that I got it. He wasn't holding on to anything. It's not a smooth ride on the tube, right? You have to hold on to something. He'd just been standing upright with empty seats all around him. It would be really hard for anyone to keep their balance. This guy was just past pension age. It was very strange, but just that at the time. I caught the train back to St Albans and then drove back to ours and sort of forgot about it. I got home just before nine o'clock. Millie was fast asleep in the living room. That got me out of explaining why I was late, but we didn't get to talk much before Cleo was up and crying. Millie went straight into mummy mode. It was a simple nappy change, so we at least knew why she was crying. I had to make us both dinner, so it was just sausages and chips. I would have been tempted to get a takeaway, but we'd been doing it a lot and I was starting to put on weight. We hardly had any food in the house. We were running on what was left in the freezer. Cleo was not a quiet baby. She had bad colic. She woke up five times a night. 
At 5am she just screamed and screamed. Millie got up and took her out of the bedroom. We thought we'd been lucky. She was pretty quiet for the first few weeks. They call that the fourth trimester, when they still don't understand that they're out of the womb. At least I wasn't working the next morning. We were going to see the nurse for some injections, but also for Millie's peace of mind. When Cleo first started to cry uncontrollably, Millie thought it was something serious. Cleo had never cried like this before. Her face was bright red. She was stretching out, arching her back like she was having a fit. It was horrible. Millie was on the phone with the doctors. It got quite nasty. She didn't believe them when they said it wasn't unusual. That was a couple of weeks ago and the awful crying was still going on. But Cleo was pretty peaceful when we got to see the nurse. She asks us a whole list of questions and we talk symptoms. She says there's nothing really wrong. Baby's just going through a phase. It will get better in time. How much time, says Millie. How long will this go on? She's asking out of desperation. She sounds like she's at the end of her tether. The nurse says soon. It usually only lasts a week or two. It's been two already, but she has no other symptoms. Cleo gets her injections and starts screaming again. Millie looks so hopeless. Even the nurse says she's a loud baby. The nurse gives us all the same advice we've had already and we leave the surgery with nothing we didn't know when we came in. We've just got to hold out for longer. As we walk through the reception, I spot an old man waiting in line. I swear it's the same one from the day before. Same dirty overcoat and blank stare. I think it's him, but I don't have time to check. I have to keep up so I can help them in the car and drive them home. We hoped our parents would help more. But Millie's parents are quite old. She doesn't want to leave clear with them while she's this demanding. We could leave her with my mum, but she's quite far away. We'd have to make a trip out of it. And we just don't have the energy. I have to go back to work in the afternoon. Millie's annoyed about it, but it was hard to get any time off this close to phase two launch. I feel so bad for her. She wants to be the perfect mum, and I don't think she really thought about how tough things were going to be. As I head back into London, I think about her friends. They're supposed to be taking her out soon, but they haven't put any plans together yet. I send one of them a text to give them a nudge and ask her to organise something. I haven't really got much experience of people management. I wasn't given any training when I was promoted. Sessions were put in the diary, but they were weeks away. I was expected to just figure things out myself before then. I wasn't really prepared for members of my team to start kicking off. It just starts with some banter. One guy is a Man City fan, the other is a Man U fan. One talks too much, the other is a bit sensitive. Reggie, the City fan, also doesn't know when to stop. When he sees Huz getting annoyed, he doesn't see that as a sign to quit. He has to keep pressing his buttons, and Huz is one of those people who doesn't have great people skills. I should have stepped in earlier. I did try to change the subject. 
Reggie is trying to make out Huz only likes Manu because only people who don't know anything about football like Manu. And then it gets a bit personal. Huz is a vegan. Reggie starts making out he's a wuss. Huz doesn't like that. He shouts at Reggie and I have to step in. I take them both out of the office and get them into a meeting room. I give them both a bollocking. I make them promise me they won't have to be separated and can work together. We go back to the office where everyone is pretending not to be tuned in to what's going on. It's so awkward. I thought I'd done okay with the whole thing. But then later my boss's boss makes sure to bump into me when I'm getting a coffee. She has some advice on how to better handle these kinds of situations. I try not to get defensive about it, but I can tell she's telling me off without actually telling me off. I'm not criticising you, but you should have done this and this and this. I ended up feeling like an idiot. So I admit I was a bit pissed off when I went home. The last thing I needed was Millie kicking off too. Her friends had been in touch, and they mentioned that I'd been in touch with them. So she's angry with me because she thinks I told them that she was having problems and couldn't cope. Which isn't what I said. I was trying to do something nice for her and get her out of the house. We get in a big row with her telling me that I'm being really patronising. That she'll go out with her friends when she wants to. And that I don't think she can handle things. But I also don't help enough. When I do try to help she just bites my head off anyway. I have to avoid the H word. Millie was being extra sensitive and mentioning her hormones would make it worse. But she must have known she was overreacting. Going off on one with no good reason. She says I don't help, but why does she think I got in touch with her friends in the first place? I mean, why wouldn't she want to go out for the evening? I'd like to go out with my mates, but I'm working all hours to make sure we've got money so we can go out if we want to. It's really hard having a blazing row without raising your voice. You just about pulled it off. Anyway, she hadn't even been out to do the shopping still, and she'd been home all day. I know babies being difficult, but seriously, I had to get a frozen pizza from the corner shop. Now Millie's complaining that she feels pressured to go out. She didn't have to, but now she doesn't want to hurt her friend's feelings. I said, fine, do what you want. Go out or don't go. I'll look after Cleo if you do. That's a given. So in the end, her friends take her out for dinner. I get Cleo for the night and she's perfectly fine with me. She drunk her bottle too fast and then got grumpy with all the wind. But that's normal. I burped her rocked her to sleep. No trouble at all. I thought Millie would take the chance to stay out late, but she was back early. She said she had a good time, but it didn't look like it. She couldn't have a drink, though. At the time, she couldn't even have a milkshake. They thought the colic might be a dairy allergy. When I told her Cleo had been really good, she looked really pissed off. Millie wasn't much fun to be around. At least Cleo seemed to be getting better. She only woke a couple of times each night over the weekend, only threw big tantrums during the day. Millie had found that driving her around the block in the car seemed to knock her off to sleep, so I got to drive her around in circles a few times, which started to make me feel sleepy too. It worked for a few days, but after that it's like she cottoned on to what we were doing and it stopped working. I finally get the shopping done on Saturday. 
and was pretty tired over the weekend. Millie gets to complain she's tired all the time. I don't get to complain that I'm exhausted, even though I'm at the office all week and actually have to leave the house. I wanted to take them out on Sunday, but the weather was too bad. Instead, I tried to cheer things up with some board games. Cleo kept waking up, though, and Millie couldn't remember the rules, so it was a total washout. I cooked a nice dinner for us, and she seemed to like that. I got one thing right, at least. I keep trying to motivate her to do something for herself. She used to do crafts and sell things online. She'd knit these little cuddly creatures. She wanted to try and make a business out of it, set up an Etsy shop, make them for babies with squeakers and bells and so on. I was trying to talk to her to see if she'd done anything about it. Sitting around all day picking up after baby wasn't making her very happy. She got defensive pretty quickly, said I didn't understand looking after Cleo was a full-time job. I was just trying to get her to do something that might make her happy. Decided to just stick to the cooking until she stopped being so moody. My team at work might be arguing all the time too, but at least there was some banter. We had a good laugh a lot of the time. Tough times can bring people together. I started to not mind the late hours. Even with all the systems issues, I could talk to the team and vent at IT without treading on eggshells or saying the wrong thing, or getting a look and being told it was nothing, when it was obviously something. As we got close to Phase 2 launch, my boss Dan swore to us that he was putting pressure on IT about all the system's downtime. With the test site offline so much, we were flying blind. We didn't know if what we were doing was going to show up wrong or right, and when the site was up again, we'd have to do all the testing back-to-back, which makes it so easy to miss mistakes. Having a nap on the train home might be the only peaceful sleep I got all day. Gave me a bit of energy back to make the drive home at the end of the journey. I knew we were moving too far out of London when we bought the place. I shouldn't have agreed to it. I love Cleo and I don't regret having her. It's not her fault. But we could have waited. We didn't need to rush into it. We could have waited till we had some more money and we'd settled down a bit. Then it wouldn't have been so bad. Because I was feeling so tired and I knew I would have to do a lot of hours before the launch, I just asked straight up if I could sleep in the spare room for a few nights. I knew Millie wouldn't like it, and I dreaded her getting in a mood over it. She said fine. As her huffs go, it wasn't bad at all. Perhaps she knew it was the right thing to do. Even though we'd had a good couple of nights recently, Cleo had relapsed back into waking up a lot. The night before, she had a crying fit that lasted an hour at full volume. When I left the next morning, I saw the look on some of the neighbours' faces. I don't think it was my imagination that they were looking pretty annoyed. The day before launch, all the managers had a progress meeting. I gave my update, and despite everything, my team were basically on target. We'd done a really good job. We put in the extra time, and we were close to where we needed to be. Dan was happy with things, although he was definitely stressed. He'd been pressured into these targets. He wasn't that confident we'd hit them. Even though things were going okay, he was edgy. He was making lots of effort to be upbeat and positive, but wasn't very convincing. I was talking to him in the elevator. He was asking about the baby, and I was wondering whether to broach the subject of working at home. It didn't seem like a good time, but it never was. 
I brought it up loads of times in our one-to-ones and he'd said maybe I could do a day, maybe two, some weeks. But with my team being new, me being a new manager and all the issues with systems, it wasn't the right time, he said. He kept saying we'd see, which meant probably never. He got off on the second floor unexpectedly, saying he needed to get to another meeting. I watched him go. When I turned my head back, the old man was standing in front of me. I hadn't seen him there. I knew someone else was in the elevator, but why him? Where had he even come from? He was right up in my face, standing inches from me, his cold, dead eyes staring into mine. I didn't know what to do or say. I was frozen to the spot. A trickle of blood fell from his nose. I watched it run over his lips and down his chin. He didn't move or say a word. When I heard the elevator doors open, I basically jumped out. On the landing, I was gasping for air. I'd been holding my breath in without knowing it. I was terrified, but I didn't know why. I spent the rest of the day tense and feeling a bit sick. There was just no reason for that weird guy to be there. He had literally not moved an inch. If he'd been breathing, I couldn't tell. The blood just ran and he didn't even react. I wondered if I was cracking up. I just had to get on with things. All was set for launch. I told Millie about it all when I got home and she was impressed by how I'd lined things all up and got my team running smoothly. I didn't mention the old man. I thought a lot about how to explain it. But when I played it back, it wasn't as weird or as strange as it had probably seemed. I just thought about what would happen if I said all this to someone and what they'd say back to me. Maybe it was just a coincidence, or was I sure it was the same man? We have some funny folk who work in facilities. Perhaps he worked in the building. It would make sense of why I'd seen him on the train, although... Why did he look so mental at work? It was so bizarre. Even in the spare room, Cleo's tantrums kept me awake. I felt like dog shit all the way into work. But for all the pressure and the potential fuck-ups, we got everything live almost bang on time. The test site held out. We had all the major errors fixed. The landing pages looked great. It all just worked. For once. I got something right. It all went so well I managed to sneak out for a drink after work with some of the guys. I ended up making it two before I had to head back. I remember taking some mints on the way just in case Millie smelt alcohol on my breath. She was really glad for me when I told her how well it had gone. The minor issue clean-up the next day went well too. We finished the error log and I took the team out for lunch. I had to put it on my credit card. Dan swore he'd get me the money back. I arranged a date night for us that Friday. We dropped Baby off at Millie's parents. We figured they could manage for just a couple of hours, even if Cleo was at her worst. We went out for dinner and then we went to see the new Marvel movie. We both fell asleep and missed the end. Cleo was asleep too when we picked her up, but she was awake by the time we got home. I was hoping this was going to be the night. Me and Millie hadn't really been together in months. I wasn't sure whether it was the exhaustion or she just didn't feel like she was physically ready. There's another subject that was just off limits. If she wanted it, she wasn't really inviting it. Things were smoother the next week at work. 
With some of the heat off for the next phase, I didn't have to work late. They had no reason to rush home either. I started to slip off to the gym after work. I kept my kit at the office. I was going to sneak it home on Friday and hide it in my other washing. But Millie started asking why I was working late still. I said it wasn't over yet, there was still phase three, which was true. She asked how long this was going to go on. I pointed out that I'd been home earlier every night this week. So what was she complaining about? I wasn't working for the fun of it. She did agree to me taking this promotion. God, it was driving me crazy. What did she want from me? Nothing I could do was good enough. Kept on sleeping in the spare room. She didn't say anything about it, so I assumed it must be fine. And she wasn't that up for being close to me anyway. I didn't bring up working from home during my next one-to-one because it was cut to half hour and Dan was going on about all this other stuff. And what did Millie even want me home for if she was only going to moan? Dan said he needed to present back to the business on Friday and he wanted me to present a few slides on the project's implementation and the challenges I'd faced in my team. It was a really good opportunity to get myself in front of the senior players and make an impression. But it was going to be a ton of work. I'd have to get all the slides ready while still doing all the prep work for phase three. I started to go home on time, but I was working on my slides in the evening. I explained this to Millie and how important this was for me. She said, well, at least you'll be here for a change. I asked her what that was supposed to mean, and she said it was like I was always trying to avoid spending time with her. After all the fuss about me working from home, I start to work from home and now it's a problem. We ended up having a row about nothing. Time I could have spent working. She said she was going to call up my friends and ask them to take me out because I needed to relax and get out more. Bitch. It was all downhill from there. I was trying to do a piece on my leadership of the team, but then my team all goes to shit. Those two pricks who can't get on actually have a proper fist fight. Huzza decided that Reggie was picking on him because he was a racist. Huzz reports him to HR. Reggie finds out and the two literally end up in a punch-up in the corridor. I didn't know about any of this until I see people trying to separate them. HR still had Dan listed as their manager, not me. So I hadn't heard anything about the complaint because Dan is suddenly taking a few days off, which was nice for him, I bet. I don't know how to handle shit like this. So Dan's boss steps in and sends them both home. Their contracts are terminated, which solves one problem. But it leaves me two heads short and looking like I can't handle things. And if that wasn't messed up enough, I get in a couple of days later and get told another member of my team has been dismissed. You won't believe why. He'd been caught jacking off in the toilets and live-streaming it. He was uploading the video to a porn site for subscribers. I mean, what the fuck? Are we paying these kids so badly they have to do porn to pay the rent? It was like a whole series of videos of him jerking off in public places. One of my team tried to send me a link to them. I had to fucking tell him, don't go sending that shit around, you want to get fired too? Millie's hardly talking to me. And that's okay because I've got to figure out how to do a presentation on teamwork and leadership in the same week that I had to fire three of my team. There's no way that the people who will be in that room won't know what's happened. I know people are talking about it. I decide I'm going to broaden things out and talk about the other micro-teams. 
takes some of the focus off mine. I get input from the other managers about the strategies they've used to paint a bigger picture of the project. The whole thing came off because all the teams pulled together. I worked past midnight on my slides. I couldn't sleep. I remember going to the toilet in the middle of the night and looking into the bathroom mirror. I got a glimpse of the old man staring at me. I jumped around in panic and pissed across the bathroom floor. It was just a trick of the mind. There was no one there. Christ, I was really losing it. When I got back to bed, Cleo started crying. There was just no fucking escape. Jacked up on Red Bull and sweating like a pig, I got up there in front of the leadership and made my big speech. And against all the odds, I don't fuck the whole thing up. I don't get that look that you sometimes get from high ups when they think you're wasting their time and look at you like you're something they just stepped in. They actually seemed interested. I even dared last minute to make a gag about all the levers. It was something like, we've had a few people come and go, and with one person that's literally true. I got a really good laugh. I got through it in a mad sweaty haze and got a strong round of applause. Afterwards, Dan was chuffed. Hadn't seen him so happy in ages. Probably just totally relieved. He's been under lots of pressure too. The whole situation had been getting to all of us. As the presentation was in the morning, me and the other team managers went out for lunch. Dan bought us all a round and that turned into another round. And then between us we just decided for this one afternoon they could manage without us. We had our phones and could see our emails. If they needed us, they could just let us know. We'd done a fucking good few months' work. Today we were going to have some drinks and relax. Dan okayed it, after a couple, and he's in charge. So that's how it was. Team bonding. It was good for us. We were actually having some fun. And because we were having such a good laugh, we lost track of time. We knew we had till home time up to 5.30, but the rounds just kept coming in. Then I realised it was 7pm and I thought I'd better be getting back. I check my phone and see that Millie's been calling me. There's like five missed calls. There's a text too. It says, Cleo's temperature is over 38 degrees. I'm taking her to the hospital. Where the fuck are you? I try to call her back. Her phone is off. I go running for the tube. The elevators are out of order, so I have to go down the stairs. I jog down like 200 stairs. By the time I get to the bottom, I know I'm going to be sick. When I get on the train, I find a Burger King bag and I throw up in it. I can't call her now. I'm on the tube. I trip on the escalator when I'm at King's Cross and fall down several steps. It fucks my knee up badly. It hurts like hell as I run for my train. I just about make it before the doors close. I keep trying to call Millie, but her phone is still off and the signal is shit anyway on the St Albans line. I'm still no wiser about what's going on when I drive back home, which hurts like hell with my knee, which is stiffening up. When I get there, I see her car is in the drive. Some serious fucking crisis if she's home already. I get inside and she's spoiling for a fight. Where the fuck have you been? I've been trying to get back here. Your phone's off. The battery went while I was at the hospital. I had to take our baby to the hospital and I couldn't find you. I was at work. Where do you think I was? I didn't hear my phone go off. You weren't at work. I know when you're drunk. 
I'm here worried our baby is getting sick while you're getting pissed and drink driving home. She lashes out and like pushes me. Jesus Christ, I didn't know this was going to happen. And as soon as I did, I came running back here. Literally running back here. Look, there's blood on my knee. I shredded my own knee to get here. But you're never here, are you? You're never here. Even when you're here, you're not here. You're thinking about work and how you can brush us off. The fuck do you think I'm at work for? It's for you. I don't fucking do it for fun. Don't give me that. It's always about you. If it was about us, you'd be here. We want you here. So you can moan at me all the time. Christ, there is nothing I can fucking do to please you. It's not about pleasing me. It's about being present. You've got a family. When I got your text, I came running all the way here. I'm limping now for fuck's sake. Don't tell me that I don't care about my family. Look at the fucking state of me. And for what? She's fine, isn't she? You're back here already, aren't you? Her temperature went down. It was a false alarm. It was all nothing. You panicked and it was all nothing. No, it wasn't nothing. How do I know if it's nothing unless I go to check? You see this? This is the real problem. You just want someone to beat up on. You want to make me a punching bag for everything because you're so miserable. I just want you to support me. She was doing the crying thing now. Except whenever I actually try to help or do something, all you do is complain. Nothing I can do is good enough. You don't want to help. You just want it to look like you're trying to help. You want to pat on the back for everything. It's like, look at me, I'm doing something. And if I'm not looking at you, you can't be bothered. This is real. This is our child. Half of the time you look like you want to be somewhere else. And the rest of the time, you just are somewhere else. Our row had gone up to full volume. Cleo was awake and crying. I'll go, I said. No, you're drunk. You said you wanted me to help. Well, I'm here and I am helping. I went to Cleo in her cot and unbuckled her while Millie watched me. I held baby up to my chest, rocked her a little, calmed her down, made baby sounds to her while inside I'm fucking raging. After watching me for a few minutes, Millie says she probably needs feeding. It seemed late, but whatever. Without saying anything else, I hand her over and leave them to it. I was starving and there was still no fucking food in the house. I shouted to Millie I was ordering a pizza. And did she want anything? She said she didn't care, so fine. I ordered an extra large, left her a few slices. She could choose to have them or not. I watched football highlights, had a few more beers. I was sure I could hear crying and not from Cleo. But I wasn't going to let it get to me. The week I'd had. And I was supposed to feel sorry for her. My knee really fucking hurt. I fell asleep on the sofa. I woke up in the early hours I'd been dribbling on the cushions. The TV had turned itself off and it was all quiet in the house. I stood up and put my foot in the leftover pizza. Patio curtains were open. I saw him standing there in the garden. It was a clear night. He looked so white. There were no excuses for it this time. There was no sane way he could be in my garden. No rational explanation. I pulled open the door and walked onto the grass. I went slowly up to him. He never flinched. It was there like a statue. I waved my hand in front of his eyes and he stayed still. Who are you?
I asked quietly, in case someone was watching. What do you want? I knew he wouldn't answer. He didn't see me. He was oblivious to the world. I walked all the way around him. He seemed real. He was three-dimensional. I stood looking him in the eyes again, watching for any sign of life. Slowly, I reached out to touch him. Steve, what are you doing? Millie made me jump. She was shouting at me from the living room. I pulled my hand back like I'd been caught doing something naughty. I looked at her and then back again. The old man was still there. I went slowly to the patio door looking back to see if he moved or if he'd vanished now that Millie was looking at him. But Millie couldn't see him. She didn't ask, Who the fuck's the weird old man? She asked, What are you doing outside? You're letting the heat out. I didn't know what to say, so I said nothing. Went back inside, put my foot in the pizza again, and went up to my bedroom. I fell asleep, eventually, but... But I spent so much time wondering whether if I went to the window I'd still see him in the garden. I didn't want to look. I was wrecked and hung over the next morning. When I got to the kitchen, it was as if Millie was waiting for me. She had just put Cleo in her chair. Cleo had just learnt how to smile. She was grinning at me. We need to talk, said Millie. Do we have to do it now? It can't wait, she said. So you're going to moan at me again? This can't go on. I rolled my eyes and went over to the fridge for something to drink. You're in a fucking mess. You look terrible. Oh, thanks. It's not about your looks. It's everything. Your whole mood, your attitude. My attitude. You're a parent now. I sit by the kitchen table and start to laugh. You keep saying that like I don't know. Like I'm not rushing around and working my fingers to the bone trying to provide for my family. I want you to quit your job. What? Seriously? You get too wrapped up in it. It's like all you think about. You think you can just park us to the side and check in to see if we're okay some of the time. I'm so sick of this. You're sick of this! She sat in the chair on the opposite side of the table. You're right about one thing. I am miserable. I am fucking miserable being stuck at home all day, sleeping when I can waiting for the next nappy change, here all day, with nothing else to do. It's hard work and I'm depressed. I know this happens after pregnancy and it'll get better. But right now I feel so tired and sad and I just want to crawl under our bed and hide in the dark all day. But I know I can't because we have a little girl who needs us. God, my head hurt. I was so sick of her complaining. You treat us like we're in the background. How many times have you been out late for drinks after work when you said you were working late? I haven't been going out drinking, except last night. We were celebrating the presentation, which I did really well, thanks for asking. Well, good for you. I spent yesterday with a crying baby, dashing to the hospital to make sure she wasn't sick, but there was no one there to give me a round of applause or a pat on the back, so I guess it doesn't really matter. I might have lost it just then if Cleo hadn't started to cry. Instead, I got up and went for my jacket. Running away from us now, she said. No, I'm going to the shops because there's no food in the house again. Your useless, doesn't-do-anything husband is going to go make sure there's food and nappies and other things in the house. But you're right. I can't stand to be here right now. I opened the front door. Well, go then. 
again. But you're going to have to decide. You can't keep doing this. If you want to be here with us, be here with us. Don't go pretending like... I slammed the door. I couldn't bear to listen to her go on any longer. Fucking drama queen. I got in my car with my head pounding. She had no fucking idea how hard I was working for them. What I was trying to do to build a future and a safe home for them both. And this is how she treats me. I felt like I was going to fucking cry. I rested my head on the steering wheel before I started up the ignition and pulled off. I didn't even know what I was supposed to be getting at the supermarket. I started to run up a list in my head as I drove along. But I couldn't get past the fucking argument. She honestly thought I didn't care about the work she put in. I know how hard it's been with that kid crying and shrieking. I've done my best to help, but she doesn't want helping, and then says I don't help enough. It's not like I'm not miserable too late nights, long journeys. Don't I get to be unhappy? Do I have to be fucking happy for them? She doesn't even leave the house to do the shopping. I have to do all this work and I get so tired, and it doesn't matter, because she's the one having a rough time. My feelings don't count. She says I'm not present, but she doesn't care about how I feel at all drives me fucking away, then tells me I'm not here for her. All these things I've done, I've done because I want the best for them, for her. If all this wasn't good enough for them, what else could I give them? My head is pounding, there are sacks under my eyes, stabbing pains in my knee. What else was I going to give? What else was ever going to be good enough for her? I couldn't just chuck in my job. The hours I've spent there, I've only been a manager for like two months. I couldn't quit now. Where would that leave me? I don't want to be a failure. How's that going to help us? We can't get by on her maternity. What does she think she's going to do without me? My windscreen shatters. My head flies forward. My foot slams on the brake. Two eyes glare at me through the glass. The car screeches to a stop. The body slides off the bonnet. I fall back into my seat. I sit still for a second, shaking. I undo the seatbelt and get out. I walk into the street just as people start to appear from all around. They're running to see if he's all right. He lies in the road, staring up to the sky. He's wearing the same clothes he always wears. The dirty Mac, clothes that look like pyjamas, flip-flops. His white hair is sticking out at the sides. He has three-day-old stubble. People are asking if he's okay. They're saying, Mate, can you hear us, mate? He says nothing back to them. He just stares up into the sky like they aren't even there. Someone calls an ambulance. Someone else asks me what happened. And I can't speak. I can't say anything. I just stare at him. Watch while a trickle of blood falls from his nose and runs down his cheek. I watch while people who don't know what they're doing try to decide whether to resuscitate him or not. They don't think he's breathing, but they're afraid to do CPR because he's so old. One gets down on their knees and tries to give it a go. She pushes down on his chest carefully, not too hard. Tries it again and again. Looks around, then carries on. The ambulance gets here pretty quick. The sad spectacle doesn't last too long. I sit myself on the curb. I can just about make out what they're saying. But I already know that he's dead. I can hear people telling the paramedics about me. They turn and shoot glances at me. The police arrive too. The old man is on a stretcher now ready to be taken away. The paramedics update them on his condition. I look down the road, towards our house. 
I see the police walk towards me. I'd worked so hard, tried so hard. I tried to do the right thing for myself and for my family. I tried to make everything work. I thought it would be all right in the end. Now I was going to lose everything. I roll over onto the pavement. I can't stop crying. Thank you for listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please give it a like or leave a review on any platform and subscribe to hear future releases. And if you want to support the podcast, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash stories. The podcast is written and produced by me, David Paul Nixon, and today's story features in the book New Ghost Stories Volume 3, which is available from Amazon, Apple Books, and other book retailers. To hear all the latest from me, Sign up to my Substack at davidpaulnixon.substack.com. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at New Ghost Stories and learn more at newghoststories.com. Next time on the New Ghost Stories podcast, in one of my New Ghost Story shorts, two boys discover something terrifying when they stick their hands on the back of the sofa. <laughs>